tell you something about uh, Clay and Sandra. Um, their hospitality is out of this world. I think y'all could open up a bed and breakfast and you would make a killing. Um, they've just been so so good to me. Um, love them dearly. Uh, appreciate them. Uh, appreciate their kids, all of whom come through Auburn. And I've got to be there when all four of them have been there, so that's been nice. Um, and I appreciate y'all once again for, for having me. As I said in the very beginning, it's always an honor to be asked to do these things. I know you could have um, asked a lot of other preachers, and there are a lot bigger name preachers than me for sure. Um, and I just appreciate the encouragement you've all given to me. Uh, our, our world is changing. Um, I was just thinking about how things were four years ago when I was here and we've got COVID in between and, and how much has changed. And um, uh, if I'm, I'm blessed to come back again in four years or, or whatever, I, I imagine things are going to be changing even some more in our time. And I just want to leave you with this. Um, whatever gets taken away from us, brethren, whatever we're being denied, rights or otherwise, uh, please remember what Peter said in chapter 1 of his first epistle, uh, that we have an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and will not fade away. And if we will remember that, no matter what happens in this state, in our country, in this world, everything's going to be okay. Uh, God bless you all. I uh, hope to see you all again soon. And if you're ever in Auburn, you always have a place to stay. Not with me, but I'll find somebody. <laughs> no, no, you have a place to stay with us. I appreciate y'all very much. The Old Testament uh, has long been revered by Jews and Christians alike as the Word of God. Uh, we Christians believe it to be fulfilled and replaced by the New Testament as the official covenant for God's people. But the Jews today continue to hold the Old Testament as their modern-day covenant. Uh, they don't refer to it as the Old Testament like we do. Rather, they believe that it contains both the history of their ancestors as well as God's prophecies still for their future. And it is for this reason that Jewish rabbis continue to read the Old Testament publicly in synagogues every Sabbath. But there's a section of it that most rabbis will skip over in their calendar readings. And for their, those Jews who only get their fill of the Old Testament scriptures at Sabbath synagogue readings, they would not even know that this particular section of the scriptures exists. Uh, this has not always been the case. Uh, a famous 17th century Jewish historian by the name of Raphael Levi admitted that Rabbis used to not only read this chapter, but that they did so well into the first century until, in his own words, the chapter caused arguments and great confusion among the Jews. And so rabbis decided that the simplest thing to do was just not to read these verses publicly anymore. And it's for that reason that the text in question has been referred to as the forbidden chapter of the Hebrew text. And I'm going to invite you this morning to turn to that forbidden chapter of the Hebrew text, Isaiah 53. In fact, the message of Isaiah 53 actually begins in Isaiah 52 and in verse 13. And it is a text that clearly refers to the Jewish Messiah, something that ancient Jewish rabbis readily admitted even well into the first centuries. But as I said, when most synagogues today arrive at Isaiah 52 and verse 13 in their calendar Sabbath readings, they will skip right over it and go to Isaiah 54 and verse 1. And the question is, why? 
Well, have you ever seen that um, movie called The Sixth Sense with uh, Bruce Willis? Uh, you remember the first time that you saw it, how surprised you were at that twist ending? But then after you watched it the second time, you started to notice all these things in the movie that had you known how the ending was going to be, a lot of those things throughout the movie would have made a lot more sense. And you kind of leave it uh, appreciating how the director set everything up. That's Isaiah 53 in a nutshell. It is a messianic prophecy of such precision that one might expect that Isaiah was standing beneath the cross itself recording what was happening. But Isaiah wrote this 700 years before it happens, and because we know how it all ended, we Christians can appreciate it all the more. Yet because what Jesus of Nazareth went through is so in tune with Isaiah 53, this very text has become a stumbling block that many unbelieving Jews simply cannot overcome. And so it is ignored. <coughs> the Roman statesman Cicero said the following about crucifixion. He said, The mere name of the cross should be far removed, not only from the persons of Roman citizens, from their thoughts and eyes and ears, for not only the actual fact and endurance of all these things, but the bare possibility of being exposed to them, the expectation, the mere mention of them even, is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. And yet Isaiah goes into great detail about what Jesus would experience in his crucifixion. And many of us are familiar with this chapter. Perhaps many of us were even reading it uh, as we were partaking of the Lord's Supper. But perhaps fewer, fewer are familiar with the context leading up to it in which Isaiah also reveals some very remarkable things. So, for example, in Isaiah 51, we are told that the wrath of God against sinners would one day be removed. And then in Isaiah 52, we're told that redemption would be accomplished and that there would be this, this new exodus in which God, through a display of unparalleled strength, would bear his holy arm. But as to the actual act itself, how these things were going to happen, were left in suspense. How would God do all this? And the answer begins in Isaiah 52 and verse 13, which begins with, Behold my servant. This fourth servant song in Isaiah is 15 verses long. It consists of five stanzas, three verses per stanza. And this first stanza, which is the last three verses of Isaiah 52, introduces all the themes of the song, but it condenses these themes in reverse order. See, chapter 53 begins with suffering, and it ends with exaltation, but in these last three verses of Isaiah 52 that begins the song, before any suffering is announced, his triumph is assured Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. That word used there, exalted, is the same word used in Isaiah chapter 6 to describe God. When we're told that Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on his throne, lofty and exalted. Same word. It's a word used by Isaiah only to describe Almighty God Himself. And so consider the implications of that. 
This servant, beginning in Isaiah 52, verse 13, he is no ordinary man. He is God. And so, of course, he will prosper. God cannot fail. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. But excitement is followed then by sorrow. As this first stanza quickly shifts from his exaltation to his suffering. Verse 14 says, Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. This is our first plot twist. What verse 14 calls astonishing, that before he is exalted, he be humiliated. Something would happen to this servant that would cause him to become so disfigured, they wouldn't look at him up on that cross and say, that poor man. They would look up at him and say, is that even a man? Is that a man? His brutal, deformed body would shock people into speechlessness. In other words, his degradation would be as low as his exaltation would be high because however shocked the Jews would be over the destruction of their sacred city, it would be nothing compared to what would happen to their Messiah. And so whatever attractiveness that God's servant would have, it was going to have to come from within because this would be a servant who would prefer to, to lose himself to win us rather than to win himself and lose us. His disfigurement would be for us. How so? In verse 15 it says, Thus he will sprinkle many nations. This likely refers to the priestly work of sprinkling the blood of the sacrifice unto the holy uh, vessels to cleanse them. And yet, despite his defilement and disfigurement, he would cleanse us. <coughs> And this shocking and unprecedented event would reach the eyes and ears of everyone and it would shock them into silence. Verse 15 says kings will shut their mouths on account of him. Meaning the greatest authorities that walk this earth, when they understand what happened here, they would be completely dumbstruck. Rendered completely speechless. Why? Because the end of verse 15 says, For what had not been told them, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. See, if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, you'll know that all throughout this book, God's people are depicted as those who are blind, and who are deaf, and who are without understanding. And when Jesus of Nazareth walked on this earth, he observed the same, quoting those very scriptures from Isaiah to describe the unbelieving Jews of that day. And so what monumental event in history of mankind could possibly open the eyes of the spiritually blind and the ears of the spiritually deaf and give understanding to those who were dull and hard of heart? None other than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It was the plot twist of all plot twists. It was something we would have never seen coming. But once it happened, everything that led up to it started to make sense. And if anything will ever shake mankind out of its complacency, bringing sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, it is this stunning event and no other. Just how stunning is this event? Stanza number two begins in verse one of chapter 53. And stanza number two tells us you're not going to believe it until you see it. Verse one poses two questions to us. Both are rhetorical. And the first question in verse 1 is, who has believed our message? And the answer is, no one. Not initially. 
If Jesus' closest entourage didn't get it until after the fact, neither would we. The thing that caused kings to shut their mouths was what they had not heard, and what his prophets caused to be heard was ignored by the majority. We wouldn't have believed it either, folks. Question number two is, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? See, back in chapter 52 and verse 10, I alluded to this earlier. It talks about how the Lord is going to bear his holy arm in Isaiah 52 and verse 10. It, that, that sounds exactly like some of the imagery that we read about in the book of Exodus. It sounds like God is going to roll up his sleeves and he's going to flex those divine muscles just like he did when Israel crossed the Red Sea. But who could possibly believe that when God finally revealed that mighty, magnificent arm, that this arm would come in the form of a servant with the kind of lowly birth, humble life, and cruel death as experienced by Jesus of Nazareth? I mean, this, this disfigured man is the arm of the Lord? This deformed man is his right-hand man? Yes. Because there is a far greater way to display power than even the kind of raw divine power that we saw displayed in books like Exodus. And that is through the power of self-sacrifice. Isaiah 52 verse 10 may sound like God is rolling up his sleeves to flex his muscles, but some of the greatest power that God has ever displayed throughout human history has been the power of divine restraint, the power of self-denial. And we see this emphasized in Jesus' sacrifice. And who could believe it? Nobody would have predicted this plan without prior revelation. And to show why God's arm was met with such shock and awe, we're given his exceptionally humble origin and circumstances. Verse 2 says, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground, meaning he had a natural birth. Yet he came from parched ground that was not suitable for growth. What kind of parched ground? I'm going to take your pick. David's seemingly fallen house. You got an Edomite named Herod ruling Judea with Romans ruling over him. You got a priesthood corrupted by the religious elite who are bound by their hypocritical traditions. I mean, take your pick. That's the kind of parched ground that God had to work with. In which Galatians 4 verse 4 tells us that God determined was the fullness of time by which to send his son. I mean, what chance would you have given someone of achieving greatness who had an origin like this, who came from something like this? Coming from Nazareth, there'd be low expectations. A tender shoot. I mean, think about that. The arm of the Lord was nothing more than a tender sap. And from there, he, he grew up with none of the physically attractive features that we often look for in leaders. Verse 2 says he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. This doesn't mean that he was ugly. It just means that there was none of that magnetic attractiveness that, that would woo a crowd. His, his true splendor wasn't on the surface. It was only for those who had eyes to see beyond the surface. So how would we have known him? Maybe through his poverty? Maybe through the anointing oil that was the spittle of his abusers. Maybe by the donkey carrying him to the city where he'd eventually be arrested and tortured. But in reality, we would have only recognized Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah if we value things like righteousness and purity 
and holiness and gentleness and kindness and love and grace. If we cherish those things, if those were the things that were on the forefront of our minds and our hearts, maybe we would have recognized Him then. But far from being recognized, verse 3 tells us He was actually shunned by the majority. Verse 3 says He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Now we're seeing why this horrible disfigurement took place. It was because he was rejected with extreme prejudice, an object of contempt. Uh, when you were young, did, did you ever make your parents so angry that they would say things like, I can't even look at your face? That's how the common man treated him. I mean, far from being the life of the party, he was a man of sorrows, taking our sorrows and weaknesses upon himself. The verse says we did not esteem him, and that means people saw no value in him. And when you think about it, to view any human being, any human being that has been made in the likeness of God with that kind of contempt, that reveals such a bankruptcy of emotion, doesn't it? So how much more when it's God's servant? I mean, no wonder he'd only be known through Revelation. He's one in which they hide their face because the world was so blinded by selfishness and power, his suffering didn't even warrant a second glance. One of the major things of the book of Isaiah is actually in chapter 2 and in verse 22. And it's a verse in Isaiah 2, verse 22, <clears throat> which cautions us to stop regarding man and esteeming him whose breath is only in his nostrils. And we still struggle with that today, don't we? I mean, we continue to give man way too much of our trust, way too much credit. Yet in God's servant, we see one who actually does merit the highest esteem man could ever merit. And we despised him and forsook him, hid our face from him, and saw little value in him for what he did. Why would this servant, who deserves to be so highly regarded and esteemed, why would he put himself in a position to be so despised and rejected? Well, stanza number three that begins in verse four. This is where we get to the heart of the poem. Stanza number three, beginning in verse four. says, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. In other words, as he is suffering, they'd initially think that God was punishing him for his sins. But imagine the shock when they realized that the grief and all the sorrow that they saw in him was actually our own because he was taking on our griefs and our sorrows upon himself. They wouldn't have discerned this at first. But that was God's will from the beginning, that his servant would be brought low and humiliated. Why? Because of my sins and your sins. Verse 5 says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. This goes so much deeper than him bearing those sorrows and griefs because it actually reveals the cause. The cause was our transgressions. The cause was our sins. 
the great mystery throughout the entirety of the Old Testament was how was God going to manage to ultimately redeem and deliver his people from their sin. And we now learn in this chapter that God's very servant would become a sacrifice to secure our spiritual well-being. The verse says he was pierced. What does that remind you of? It can only be crucifixion. By his wounds or by his scourging we are healed. What does that sound like? It sounds like the very scourging that he experienced at the hands of the Romans. And brethren, this was no mercy killing. In order to secure our salvation, God's servant would be crushed because that's how serious sin is. Uh, interestingly, if you go all the way back to the first chapter of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 1, and in verses 5 and 6, one of the things that Isaiah compares the people of Judah to in Isaiah 1 verses 5 and 6 is he compares them to this walking spiritual wound from head to toe. And depending on how your translation reads, but God asked them in, in, in verse 5 of chapter 1, where are you going to be stricken again? Meaning, how much harder am I going to have to beat you to get you to straighten up is basically what he's saying. But then just a few verses later in verse 18, he promises them, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And the question is, how? How do you go from being a walking wound from head to toe to which God can't beat you any harder than He's already beaten you to having all those sins washed away? It happened when God sent His servant, His Son, to take the beating force. And it was no ordinary beating. He was crushed for our iniquities. God sent the only man to this earth who was actually worthy of our highest esteem. And he allowed people to beat that man senseless and to torture him to death in the most unimaginable way so that he could become the physical wound that we were spiritually. And that's how... Through our, though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. That's how that could happen. There could be no other way. And why did he have to go through this ordeal, this awful treatment? Because we're selfish people. Verse 6 says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Just like sheep, brethren, we were single-mindedly unaware, focused only on the next clump of grass. We were stubborn. We were headstrong, easily frightened, easily fearful, and to running away, easily lost. This was not herd instinct. Don't think Romans 3.23, all have sinned and shall fall short of the glory of God. Of course we corporately and, and as a group have fallen away. But don't think herd instinct here because the verse says each of us. That is individual responsibility. It's not just that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's that I have, me personally. The consistent principle across all of Scripture is that we are individually responsible. We individually reap what we sow. And in order for God to save us from that stubborn pride, 
Jesus would have to reap what we sow by bearing our iniquities. It's the ultimate paradox. You ever wondered what Jesus might have been thinking as he's going through all this? Honestly, I don't know how he could be thinking anything rational. I would have been so distracted by the sheer pain of it all. I don't know if I could have even put a rational thought together. But stanza number four, that begins in verse seven, actually gives us an inside look into the servant's own consciousness as he's being led away to die. How did he respond to the great <coughs> injustice rendered toward him? Verse 7 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. So what was his disposition? Clear-headed, self-restrained, voluntary acceptance of the injustice of it all. He offered no verbal resistance. Now, most sheep are silent before death out of ignorance. And I don't know this from experience, but I've heard that the silence can be deafening because they have no idea what's about to happen to them. They're led to the slaughter and blind compliance. But Jesus was different than this because he knew what was going to happen to him. And that makes it more powerful because it means that he was silent out of submission. I mean, think about it. We, we merited every negative lamb comparison from verse 6. But he demonstrated every positive lamb comparison while suffering the negative ones. Have you ever protested some mistreatment? Even if you deserved how you were being mistreated, have you ever protested it like Cain did in Genesis 4? My punishment is too great to bear. Well, no one was more innocent than Jesus. And he did not open his mouth. No one had a right to protest more than Jesus. Yet he was silent. In verse 8, it tells us by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Um, the idea of oppression here, it, it means without restraint. And, and judgment means rights, due process, as we call it here in the United States. But his treatment, unjust from start to finish. There was no restraint with, without restraint. It, there was a restraint of justice. There was oppressive legal treatment. The six stages of Jesus' trial were the most scandalous in all of history. You know, every criminal defense attorney will have to eventually answer the question, how can you defend a person you know to be guilty? Every single one has to deal with that. But in 1765... Uh, William Blackstone answered it this way. He said, it is better that ten guilty persons escape than one innocent suffer. But the trial of Jesus Christ, it was the ultimate of all innocent suffering so that countless of us who are guilty can be set free. What a paradox. Verse 8 also says, and as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people 
to whom the stroke was due. This can be one of the more confusing verses of the, of the song. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of the NLT, the New Living Translation, um, but the way it paraphrases Isaiah 53 verse 8 is really good, and I, and I want to read it for you. Um, the NLT renders it as, Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. It's the same idea from verse 1, right? I mean, among the onlookers, among his circle of peers, no one understood what was really happening. See, this is the first clear indication from the song, from the song that he wouldn't simply suffer, but that he'd actually die. And the idea from this verse is that nobody was speaking up about that and saying, you know, it's not right for this guy to be murdered in the prime of his life. It's not right for this guy to be murdered without any children to carry on his name. Nobody was speaking up and saying those kind of things. But he did it all for us. The strokes he received belonged to us. And he went through it for us. In verse 9, it says his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Now, typically after a crucifixion, the body was not allowed a proper burial, but it was thrown in a, in a common grave where prior victims of crucifixion were buried. And to add insult to injury, this is what was planned for Jesus' body, just to treat him as another criminal, another evildoer. But you'll remember from the gospel accounts that Joseph of Arimathea asked permission from Pilate to take Jesus' body and give him a proper burial. But why would he be allowed that? Why would he be allowed a proper burial in a royal grave after such unjust treatment? Verse 9, because he'd done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Uh, violence here in this verse, it means planned hostility against people. Uh, and that word deceit is um, wickedness in the heart, that kind of wickedness that comes with ulterior motives. And Jesus had none of that. He was totally guiltless to both outward and inward sin. James chapter 3 and verse 2 says that, that the one who doesn't stumble with his tongue is a perfect man. And you'll remember from Isaiah chapter 6, even Isaiah needed forgiveness uh, for, for, for his mouth. But Jesus didn't do anything. He didn't say anything. He didn't even think anything that would have made him wicked. He was totally innocent. But willingly suffered in spite of it. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Now, before we look at this last stanza, the last three verses of the song that begins in verse 10, I want you to consider how each of the prior four stanzas contains a paradox. In stanza number one, the paradox is how can suffering lead to exaltation? In stanza number two, it's how can one so plainly human be the arm of the Lord? In stanza number three, it's how can one so highly esteemed be esteemed, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted? And in stanza four that we just discussed is how can a condemned criminal receive a rich man's burial? Well, stanza number five, that begins in verse 10, it begins with the word but. And it is in this stanza that we see for the first time in the song God's perspective on the matter. God the Father. And what a perspective. Verse 10 begins, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. 
Why were wicked people allowed to crush God's servant? Because it was the Father's will that he be crushed. Even more, embrace yourself. It pleased God to do it. That make you uncomfortable? It's quite a paradox. How could the Father allow something like this? Because of the fruit that he knew it would bear. Notice the word if in verse 10. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. Uh, the purpose of the guilt offering um, from the book of Leviticus is it was to make reparation for sins against the Lord's holy things or to make compensation for offenses against one's neighbor. It always went further than what we're used to hearing about the, the sin offering because the guilt offering was about um, offering uh, an offering by demanding satisfaction of unpaid debt. That's basically what the extent of it is. See, we look at texts which we've discussed this week, like Matthew 10, 37, that says, anyone who loves father or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And, and we think about passages like that and, and family, you know, becoming sort of that false standard of authority like we talked about, and we think, well, you know, that's hard. And, you know, for some, it's, it's too hard. But God put you and me before his own son to save us. We were the ones who owed God an unpayable debt. But Christ came and he paid for it himself. And that pleased God to crush him. And by doing so, the third part of verse 10 says he will see his offspring. And you know what that means by offspring? That means spiritual posterity. The idea from verse 8, as we read it from the New Living Translation, is how awful it was that this man who was in the prime of his life, I mean, dying at 33 years old, how someone like that in the prime of his life should die without descendants so young. But that wasn't entirely true, was it? He will see his offspring. How? Look around the room. You and me. We all strayed as sheep. But those of us who have obeyed the gospel, we returned as children. And what's more, that same man who was crushed and suffered and died for us, he sees it. He sees every single one of us. And you know how? Because verse 10 says, he will prolong his days life. Jesus died terribly. He was buried, but he rose to never die again. And he sees his offspring. He sees us, brethren, even now. And verse 10 says, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand, meaning it was a delight to God that his servant could be the guilt offering. It pleased him because he knew what that would ultimately lead to. And so as verse 11 says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. This word anguish is talking about the internal laboring of the servant. Have you ever encountered an individual who's suffering internally and he felt satisfied about that? Any of you guys that are suffering physically right now, do you feel internally satisfied? <laughs> I wouldn't either. 
meet the Father. To him, every bit of the servant's suffering was worth it for what it would result in. And what's more, it wasn't just the Father that thought this. Jesus thought it too. Because Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 tells us that it was for the joy set before him that caused him to endure the cross and despise the shame of what he'd experienced. Because in verse 11 it says, By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Meaning he knew exactly what was needed and how to do it to get us back right with God. And part of this, of course, was living a perfect moral life so that he could be qualified to bear our iniquities. And what I would say to Jews, unbelieving Jews, um, alluding back to Isaiah 51, is that no longer is Abraham the rock to which we are to look to, to which we are now hewn from. Now it is Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. You want to pursue righteousness? The servant is both the beginning and the end of the quest. Verse 12 says, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. I mean, talk about anticlimactical. I mean, whose victory is this? It ain't ours. It's the servant's victory. And yet, as he said on the cross, when it is finished, to tell us die, he takes the spoil and he shares it with the strong, with the strong, those that are in him. The fruits of victory are shared with the whole company of the redeemed. And the song closes with a fourfold statement on the grounds for which he can take such spoil. Verse 12, it says, because he poured out himself to death, meaning there was nothing left for him to give after what he did. He was the agent and the suffering of the outpouring. It says it was numbered with the transgressors, meaning even though he's the righteous one, he personally identified with those sinners he came to save. He was content to temporarily suffer loss of reputation in life. Yet he himself bore the sin of many, many, many. We already saw this in verse 11. He acted to lift our sins and take them away. And the song ends in verse 12. And interceded for the transgressors. Meaning he's our mediator. Taking our pleas to the Father's very ear. He is the bridge and the go-between for us and God to be presented before him justified. That was what it was all for. You see, this servant song, it started with exaltation in chapter 52, verse 13. But if you've never read it before, you, you just can't know the many plots and twists that it would take to get there. But oh, what a journey. Never has there been a better plan contrived for mankind than this story of the astonishing suffering servant whose name is Jesus of Nazareth, who is our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is an awful story, but it is also good news for us. The good news of Jesus Christ. And the end of his journey toward exaltation is to be the beginning of our journey. <clears throat> How will you respond? If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, and if you are waiting on something to compel you to become one that is greater than this story we just looked at, 
you're not going to get it. Herein lies the power what God did for you in doing what you could not do yourself. And if you've been inspired to become a Christian this morning, we're going to stand, we're going to sing an invitation song. Or if you feel this morning as though you have not been living as honorably as you need to, to bring honor to Jesus Christ who did die in this way for you by living the life of purity and holiness that he does demand of us by grace. We're also going to sing this invitation song. We invite you to come forward, make it known, and let us know how we can lift up your hand. We'll pray for you. We'll help you in any way that we can as we all aspire to get to the same goal, that is to be with God one day in heaven itself. How can we encourage you this morning? Come forward and let us know while we stand and while we sing.